Welcome back to the Denver Junkie, everyone. Uh, my name is Justin Green, and today we have a very special episode for you guys today. Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, although we're still going to do an article analysis, as always, but after the article analysis, there will be a special guest on the show that I won't ne- that I will interview about their quarantine experience. So make sure you stay tuned for that. But first, we will have an update about the coronavirus and what's happening in the near future. So now, uh, worldwide, about uh, 3.06 million people have COVID-19 um, from the time of, from the time of this recording, and roughly uh, one third of these people are Americans. And even though um, 1.02 a million million Americans uh, have COVID-19, I think personally that uh, it is getting better. Um, and although protests uh, and things are going on right now, people are beginning to realize that this pandemic is serious and that they need to stay indoors. Uh, Trump is also beginning to open up more places like meat processing plants and uh, essential areas of work. And although I understand that is that this may be important to the economy, I think that we hold off just a little bit more, um, maybe like 10 to 14 days. Then we could open places like these back up slowly and one at a time. Um, also, the NFL, the 2020 NFL draft recently came up, and although it may have seemed simple enough to produce, there were actually many challenges that the NFL uh, faced in order to make the draft watchable, watchable for football fans. Uh, the first quote that we have from a protocol news site uh, states that the simplest way for ESPN to tweak the draft would have been, in effect, to stage an enormous Zoom call, which probably would have worked fine. But for other sports-starved um, community, for for a sports-starved community unusually excited to tune into the broadcast on ABC, ESPN, and the NFL Network, a show that. Uh, seems likely to top last year's 6.1 million average viewers. The team want, wanted to do more. And um, although I do understand why they would want to do more than a Zoom call, because that just seems a little bit basic, I feel that they uh, that the, they did this uh, like a little bit too much. Like it was a little bit extra um, for what was actually going on. Um, so, because for example. They had the same, like, type quality, like, of a setup um, for, like, the last round people. Uh, like, for every for every player that was drafted, it was, like, the same quality and, like, equipment that, that they used. And um, for the amount of players that is drafted in the NFL draft, that is a lot of money and a lot of equipment. For something that uh, normally not that many people watch. However, I will say that uh, it was fun at some times to watch the players, coaches, and some GMs in their homes doing things, doing like funny things, as well as John Elway. Like, uh, there's one part where John Elway raised the roof. That was sort of funny as well. Um, but just also watching the players at their home. What's this? or, like, connects with them more, like, lets the audience connect with the players more. Uh, So this next quote is a small amount of 
detail regarding the complexity behind providing and producing the NFL draft. Um, it says that the draft is always slightly more uh, complex, uh, or the draft is always slightly more complicated than your average sporting event because the show cuts from the stage to the crowd to someone's home to an analyst uh, to a team's conference room and to backstage. But this one's a whole different level, uh, David Johnson said. They're bringing in about 150 sources, whether it be coaches, team sites, individual prospects, or commissioners. Um, and they're coming in uh, uh, now over several different methods of transport. We've got fiber, we've got satellite, we're using the cloud. And then we've got several different call centers that are effectively sub-switching for us, routing feeds to different places that so things aren't running up the same paths. It all requires three different vendors, including AWS, to keep running. On top of that, the team at ESPN uh, managing the data has to do so from home over the Citrix VPN uh, the company uses. So that is a very large quote, but basically it's saying that um, there's a lot of different sources that the players are using in order to stream themselves, and it's kind of a challenge for the team to uh, sort of uh, capture all that in one broadcast. So to be quite honest, I don't know what half of this means, but... Uh, I'm glad that those people do because it was it's it was seriously impressive that uh, people are able to retrieve so many different sources of video and put them into one place. And like I said before, it may have been a little bit overdone in my opinion, but this could have just been for uh, like the player to see their name or themselves on TV, just in case they like don't make it and don't get big in the NFL. That's just their one little moment to shine, I guess. I don't know. Um, so towards the end of the article, it talks about the lack of emotion that might be behind this year's draft. So uh, I think that this is very true. The article states, Feinberg uh, said he's excited nonetheless. If you strip the draft down to its simplest form, he said it's capturing not only the business meeting aspect of it, but the emotion of it. This draft might feel less like a capital uh, E event and more like uh, an intimate gathering. There are only a few fans this year uh, in this year's draft that can't even attempt to do. Um, there won't be throngs of live fans booing or cheering their team's decisions. Um, and And what about the... Uh, requisite on-stage hug between the drafted players and the commissioner. No, ESPN right, can't replace it virtually. But that's probably a good thing. Um, so, one, I think that one of the best parts of the draft is, like, seeing the players' emotions and, like, basically watching, their, like, their childhood dreams come true of going to the NFL. Because that is, that is the best of the best. Um, also, as well as, um, you know, listening to the fans booing and cheering and it just 
makes the whole experience seem more realistic. And so, yeah, like like the uh, quote said, you can't really replace that virtually. Um. So it it was an interesting draft this year, I would say, but uh, nevertheless. Uh, we can return to like a normal draft by next year. Um, so now we have a special part of this episode where we interview my mom. That's right, the special guest is my mom, and we're going to talk to her about some of her quarantine experiences, and she's going to answer five questions that I've given her. So let's get started. All right, mom, first question. Uh, what's been the hardest change you've experienced during this pandemic, if any? You know, I, I oversee a team of about 20 people, and each of them have a different thing going on at home. So I have folks that are single with no kids, and I have folks that are married with young kids, and there are folks like me who have kids that are pretty self-sufficient. So getting them home and able to adjust to life with kids at home, especially if they have little kids that need um, a lot of attention, um, with the homeschooling and all that kind of stuff, that is, um, has been a challenge. Um, my company luckily was prepared for this. We do a pandemic test even every year. So everyone has a laptop. So when they told us it was time to work from home, we were able to pack up our stuff and go home and immediately pick up the next day and start working. Um, so it's really just adjusting to life with the kids at home and shifting from in-person meetings to remote, but we're spread across a couple of um, offices anyway, so about half of our meetings are done through a video conference as it is. So that part wasn't as challenging as having you guys around all the time. Alright, um, do you think that we are taking the correct steps in recovering from this process, and if not, what should we do instead? I do, you know, you have to make some choices here, and, and right now we've kind of Swung the, swung the pendulum over to protecting life, right? We have to be worried about the health and well-being of our citizens and our, our people um, first. And so now the, the pendulum is slowly swinging back the other way to also be concerned about the economy. Um, we've bought ourselves time to get infrastructure in place to have additional hospital beds and ventilators and protective equipment for healthcare workers. Um, so, you know, now they're starting to release us back into the wild, so to speak. Um, it will be nice to see the economy get going again. We've had a lot of our customers being impacted by this at, at my work. Um, we've had to put a lot of projects on hold because customers are really circling the wagons and not wanting to spend money right now. So um, we're staying busy, but only just. We're not seeing a lot of new business come in our doors right now. Um, but we are helping some of our existing customers improve their businesses. So um, I think it was necessary to, to send everybody home and get everybody locked up and, and get this thing under control. But I think it is we will do long-term lasting damage to the economy if we don't start trying to get people back to work. We also have to think about, you know, I was talking to our neighbor the other day who runs several restaurants. Um, and so we have to be thinking about the phased approach to this because you know, he runs 11 restaurants. He told us the other day that each restaurant to reopen is like basically starting over from scratch and it's going to be a thirty dollars to $40,000 cost to him to get inventory in place, get his people back in, get everything retrained. 
So this restarting of the economy is going to be a long, slow, gradual process because people don't have that kind of money to just be able to turn it all back on. It's not like a light switch. Is that thirty or forty thousand dollars for each restaurant? For each restaurant. Wow. Um, so what long-term impacts do you think we'll, we will experience in the economy moving forward? You know, like I was just saying, the, I think we'll see some parts of the economy, these services companies, restaurants, um, I think they'll come back gradually. I mean, they have to, again, restart their businesses. I think we'll see, learn, my theory is anyway, my personal opinion, we'll see some long-term impacts in hospitality and travel. I think companies, I think a lot of that business comes from companies sending employees out to work. Um, remotely, and I think companies are learning that they can still sell deals and close business and be productive with employees across the country and not having to spend all the money that they spend on travel. Um, I know my company spends a lot of money on sending salespeople to do in-person meetings with customers and that kind of stuff. So I think we'll see lasting impacts around hospitality and travel, but I think the rest of it will bounce back. I would like to say quickly that um, over time, we'll get people back to work um, in some of these services industries pretty quickly, I hope. All right. Um, since quarantine uh, has begun, what do you or do you think people have gotten more or less productive in terms of doing schoolwork or just service in general? I think it's a little both. When you have kids at home, it can be hard to be productive. Right, um, obviously. <laughs> but, but if you have kids like my kids who are pretty self-sufficient and able to get their work done without me having to be involved in their day-to-day. Honestly, I have fewer impacts when, interruptions, I mean, when I'm at the office, people are in and out of my office constantly, all day, whether it's to tell me something that's going on or just catch up for what happened over the weekend or tell stories about our kids. Um, I don't have that going on now, so I actually find that my day ends about an hour earlier than it does if I'm in the office, but I'm lucky. Um, I think a lot of people are having a hard time being as productive as they are at the office where they can separate home life from work life, be at work, get their work done, and go home. I got a, I have a lot of people on my team right now that are getting a lot of their work done after their kids go to bed because it's the only time that they can really focus. Yeah. Um, so uh, where have you seen the most people impacted by this pandemic? This could be uh, certain races, industries, or certain classes. Yeah, I, I feel like we're putting... Our blue-collar workers as a society are the ones that we're putting at risk, Um, the ones that work in essential services typically. Um, So our example is here in Colorado, we have those folks, there's a meatpacking plant up in Greeley that has had, I think we're up to eight people now that that work there have died from COVID-19 because they have to work in close quarters with one another, Um, and the disease is spreading very rapidly. we also, I looked at a map, this was probably a couple weeks ago, about kind of where the hot spots are in the city of Denver. And you see hot spots in neighborhoods like Montbello and Green Valley Ranch that tend to be a little more blue collar. So these folks are hourly employees that have to go into the office, or have to go, sorry, into the workplace to, to get paid. And if they're not on the job, they're not getting paid. So if your choice is putting yourself at risk or feeding your, and feeding your family or not feeding your family, you're going to put yourself at risk so you can feed your family. Right. So we've put these folks in a tough situation, and we are seeing the results of that, and that we are seeing higher incidence of disease among those populations. Um, for the, the white-collar jobs, for people who can still can work remotely, um, it's not as impactful. It also brings to mind for me the, the risk of 
having our health care tied to working. So if you're unemployed and you, you lose your health care coverage um, and you're unemployed because there's this disease running rampant, um, now you're unemployed with no insurance. And if you get the disease, that could have a drastic financial impact to you for years to come while you're trying to pay off potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars of health care bills and could put people who are you know, on the fence sort of solidly middle class doing okay but getting by could really have dramatic impacts to them financially for years to come. Uh, well, that's it, Mom. Thanks for your time, and maybe we'll have you sometime on the show again. All right, well, that, that concludes the episode of Denver Junkie, and wow, this one was a good one. Uh, if you are not new here, we always ask a learn-green question at the end to get your minds churning after the podcast, and this time it's a question that I asked my mom. Uh, so what long-term impacts do you think we will experience in the economy moving forward? Uh, yeah, so thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. And I will see you on on next week's episode of The Denver Junkie. My name is Justin Green, signing off.